This episode of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future, is brought to you by the Innovative Leadership Institute. What worked yesterday won't work today, and what works today won't work tomorrow. We help executive teams prepare for accelerated uncertainty by creating the foresight needed to stay competitive, elevating leaders to thrive, and transforming organizations to become future-ready. If you'd like to discuss how we can help prepare your organization for tomorrow, please visit InnovativeLeadership.com and click Contact Us. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to be joined by Rini Das, the founder of RD Management Consulting. Rini has an exceptional background with both being an entrepreneur, working in big data consulting, and also starting a gamification company. Today, we're going to be talking about building resilient companies and companies that are anti-fragile, pulling together a lot of Rini's experience in how she's helped companies move through the challenges that we're currently facing. So Rini, welcome. Thank you. This is a great opportunity and thank you for inviting me. Rini, tell us about your work and how you're helping organizations navigate this set of challenges that they're facing. For the last, let's say, few decades, I've been helping large and small, mostly large companies work with the idea that uncertainty within us has been always there. We've always had some level of volatility. And if you look at essentially how people make money on the stock prices, you want some volatility because that's how you actually use the spread to your advantage. With respect to what organizations do very poorly is they don't simplify. And instead, they introduce a lot of complexity, in my opinion. And that's where really I've come in and essentially help companies. If I go back and look at the entire thread of my working life and what I've done, Reduction of complexity has been an ongoing thread, whether it is basically getting them to look at data and reduce complexity, or whether it is actually setting up resilient processes and having an operational DNA to reduce that complexity. It has always been targeted towards that. As you say, reducing complexity, one of the things that strikes me is that we're working in a complex world. So how do you balance reducing complexity without oversimplifying things that are truly complex? That's a great question. One of the best experiences and how I got started, you know, I'm an immigrant. And when I came into this country, I was a professional graduate student for a very long time. And after I came back and I decided in a way to work, this was the early 90s. And as you know, we were trying to change healthcare, And so every hospital needed sort of a geek, nerdy data person to come in and help them out. I started working in different hospital systems in Ohio. And it was an amazing experience because if you think of hospital and healthcare delivery systems, almost every business process that you would ever encounter in any industry it is there in healthcare delivery system. And talk about complexity. You come in, you see a physician, you get admitted. I mean, all of those things. Your bed has to be cleaned. Every room has to be changed. Your food has to be delivered. Plus, you're getting healthcare. And I think we did a study once. How many people come into an inpatient's room? And it was on average 72 people during the day. And this was a university hospital. There were all the students also coming in. They were included in the pool. 
that's a huge interaction in 24 hours. And so, yes, those are very complex situations. But in there, we have introduced our own bureaucracy and different kinds of complex, what I call as unnecessary complexity. For example, the goal of an inpatient care is really you're learning to make them do not get infection, you know, hospital-acquired infection, and, you know, they get better, and then they send home. That is the goal. But instead, we have introduced so much complexity that is completely unnecessary to the goal because somebody thought it was a good thing to do. So that education was very helpful for me because everything else was so less complex when I walk into an insurance company or, you know, when I walk into a bank. It's much easier to see this clear line of sight to the customer or the user or patients, whoever you're serving. One of the things that really strikes me across our company and all of our clients is also prioritizing where do we spend our effort? Because there are lots of things that are really helpful, but some hit that mark of most crucial to deliver exceptional service, right? whether it's client service or insurance or good data sets. And then there's all the other stuff that we enjoy doing or think might be useful, but isn't on that critical line for people who can't see you and you're drawing a line. Right. With patient care, you have to be right. Right. It's not directionally correct. It's we got to get it right. Absolutely. And one of the things I learned early on in my professional career, this Kano model, K-A-N-O, model of competitiveness, right? And how do you stand there? And basically what they took customers' expectations, and this gentleman broke it up into three priorities. One is what is known as must-haves. So as an organization, you have to decide if these things are not delivered to the customer or the stakeholder or whoever you're serving, then they will never come back. So this is like a must-have. If you don't get it, then your customer satisfaction goes way down. But if you get it, nobody cares, right? So these are the dissatisfiers and the must-haves. But it is also an indicator whether you're going to survive in an organization if you're not providing that. You have to provide 100% of the time, those must-haves. And then you have you know, some of the what is known as satisfiers or more is better. So those are your priorities where the more you give that, the more satisfaction goes up. The less you give of that, less satisfaction comes in. And the last one is what is known as delighters. And these are the ones that are going to act. These are unexpected expectations. And those are the ones that will let you thrive and grow. So have you built, you know, operational processes and everything else? And has the leadership prioritized based on that? Some organizations do a good job. Some organizations' leadership focus so much on the delighters that they're constantly pivoting, which just drives everybody else crazy. And it cannot be resilient in that sense. And then some, because they have lost the organizational DNA and with a lot of changes happening in the workforce these days, they are not even providing them basic must-haves. And you know they're not going to survive for too long. Let's talk about then organizational DNA. How are you defining that? What I have found is some of it is actually processes that they have put into place, which they have defined it and made it a habit that becomes part of the culture in the way they think. And just like DNA, there's a set of leadership that is there 
people in their 50s and you know 60s who are not retired or have not left the workforce who have enough experience shill reaction to things as they are happening and have they really passed on those behavioral things to somebody who has less experience in how they are reacting to me that is the dna that's the threat right so have we passed it on in such a way that those behaviors that is expected stays on let me test my understanding of that then. So part of that's business acumen. Yes. I'm working with a company right now that's had a fair amount of turnover at the senior level. Good things post-COVID, some senior execs are retiring, creates opportunities for the next round of people. The question is then that next tier, have they learned how to make decisions for the enterprise? Right. Are they good leaders? They're going to have less experience, but do they have enough that they can help the enterprise be successful and do the massive change that's required right now? I'm finding that it is becoming increasingly difficult because there are a lot of things that we put into place in 1990s and the early part of 2000, 2010. Then as technology became more available and faster, we focused all our investment on that. A lot of companies did all kinds of crazy things to save money. So as we know, stock prices or you know, value of a company is based on a, your P&E ratio. P&E ratio is based on your operating margin. So at some point, in order to address operating margins, we started outsourcing our supply chain without having an understanding of how risk is going to play out. You went first to India for call centers, right? Then India became more expensive. So you just went to the cheapest place because you thought that's going to essentially impact the operating margin. But it didn't take into account long-term impact of those things, especially if something happens, right? And I think that lesson and those lessons played out as we scaled up or scaled down during the pandemic. I'm not sure how much organizations have learned in the process from that. I would have said that if this happened in 2000, 2010, probably we would have been a little more resilient to those changes. When I started the company, I was coming out of big consulting and the percentage success factor of large transformational changes, failure was about 70%. And by failure, I don't mean the thing wasn't implemented. Right. We were brilliant at implementing the system. We weren't necessarily brilliant at doing things that really, frankly, weren't in the scope, which was delivering the business value that was defined in the business case, but was never in our scope. That number has not changed in over 20 years. And so a lot of our conversation is how do we change culture? How do we align systems? How do we align individual behaviors? Because over-automating doesn't necessarily deliver the value without creating the alignment, especially when we automate in too many things without attending to adjacent systems. Right. We are, in fact, creating unnecessary complexity and work steps and just because they're automated doesn't make them smart. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of my colleagues that I've worked with for decades, Pamela Schmidt-Cavillaro, she is now fully retired being a grandmother, so that's great for her. But she used to, you know, say this all the time, all you do with automation is make the errors come at you faster. I see that over and over again. 
talking about complexity, you know, reducing complexity. I've been in the tech world also for a long time. I always tell the developers, you're developing a software. Why do you have to give the user seven different ways to log out? This thing to log out can be done in two ways and just keep it that way. Because if you're doing it seven different ways, now you have seven different code sets that you have to manage so that when you're automating and integrating with some other system, now you have to take into account how different ways this you know, user will drop from their you know, site and then they're going to complain about something else. So it leads to an exponential level of complexity just because some developer in some place in the world thought, oh, it's cool to give you another option to just log out from the system. And this happens in much bigger scale in everything. And that ties back to your conversation about complexity and must-haves and get the must-haves right. And then is an extra approach to logging out a satisfier or a dissatisfier, frankly. Absolutely. And then you have the other question you mentioned about the things we implemented, but what we don't think about is also adoption. Gordon Moore of Intel, he created Intel, other than Moore's law of making the chips faster, which is what has happened. And so errors are coming out faster, right? He also talked about adoption, user adoption and everything else. And to me, that's like the core of change management. We've created databases, I mean, gosh, I mean, 40 years ago, relational database going back to 1980s. Oracle came out late 80s and, you know, they set up all these systems in place. And then we have Excel coming in. I've walked into organizations. Now they're going through their cloud transformations, moving everything to the cloud from their regular servers. People's behavior and how they work with anything, they are going to do what is most comfortable to them. That is true with me. That is true with you. I mean, why would you want to change? You're comfortable in your setup. And here is you know, somebody else telling me to change my behavior. And I have found people, what they used to do is just download the data set so they could work on Excel because you know they would lose a connectivity somewhere. It is so much easier to work on a local station. So those behaviors just constantly gets replicated. That will never change. It will be a different version of something going forward. I mean, this brings in all the issues that we're going to have with adapting to AI. I was just thinking exactly that, that AI is going to even further accelerate the volume and rate of change. And if we don't do this well, we increase our complexity and decrease our value. Absolutely. There is a website called Jabber Wacky. <laughs> that was created in 1987, and you can still find it. It was basically you're having a conversation with a computer. You know, you type whatever you want. This was even before all the search algorithms came into play. It was around the same time it was getting developed, but it was not available. And there was a small little mainframe computer somewhere. Everybody would put in their questions, and then you have a chat. How are you? And the computer would say, I'm good. How are you? You know, and it will kind of go back and forth. That technology, I don't think, has evolved. It has become much more available. To me, it is the level of maturity of those situations. I'll give you a personal example. In my office here, when I first built it in 2007, we have a dishwasher. The dishwasher, it's a, like Maytag. I got a little postcard saying something is there that needs to be replaced, and I have to call this 1-800 number, and it's part of warranty, blah, blah, blah. So I call them and then you know, it says, if your name is John Doe, say J-O-H-N, 
D-O-E, John Doe. What is your name? So, you know, I happen to have seven letters, you know, for an Indian, that's a very short name. And so I say R-I-N-I-D-A-S, Rini Das, comes back to me saying, did you say your name is Badass? If that is correct, then press one or else press two. I was petrified. I had two and I went back and did the same. It came back and gave me the same response. You know, the computer in the database, they were matching my sound. So they matched my sound and they found only one word that would go with das and that was badass. So somebody had put in that information. So it came back with that response. That's how these learning tools work. It is what information are you putting in there for it to learn? (laughs) You know, when you look at maturity of these systems as to what they're putting in, there are two issues that is going to happen. One is misinformation that is going to be put into it just because somebody thought it was cute and funny, or somebody is actually politically using that for very, very bad purposes. In Russian, I believe there's a word called disinformat, which means purposefully putting in disinformation to create a whole sense of chaos, because there are a lot of chaos players and industries that actually benefit from that chaos, right? So that is going to happen, and we need actual structure and the law to follow up to kind of create deterrence for that piece of it. But also it is just going to be, we have to understand the level of maturity. It's interesting. I was at a CEO summit this week, and one of the conversations was about the partnership with IBM and the Cleveland Clinic having the first privately held quantum computer and how the volume of computing power will help solve significant medical research challenges. To me, there are such upsides when used well that our entire society will benefit. To your point, managing the downside of disinformation, using it wrong. Mm -hmm. My partner, Mike, has a Tesla, and he was one of the testers for the full self-driving Tesla. When it first started, it drove like a 14-year-old. It was just learning to drive just like any young child does, and it didn't understand traffic circles. It didn't necessarily understand median strips in my neighborhood, or the last person who was driving it thought it was funny to drive through the median strip. The point was it didn't have enough good data, and a week or two weeks later, it now understands traffic circles. Right. So it is learning quickly, but if we think about how much we as humans take in to learn to do a simple task like driving, we discount how complex these activities are and how much learning our machines have to do before they can be appropriate general interns. That's a great example to explain the maturity and how machines are learning. It is very similar to how humans or any kind of animal is basically learning. There's so much only you can do it instinctively. And with respect to machines, there is no instinct. You have to create the sense of instinct. I had started a gamification company called Parker Games in 2008. So I kind of understand some of the human behaviors especially how you can influence that using computational tools to aid them. During that time, there was a game that was created in the University of Washington, and everybody was playing it. It was called Spores or something like that. And it was about how viruses replicate and you're stopping the virus from replicating. So everybody loved the game. 
But what was happening in the background, all the human interactions with the game was being recorded. That led to actually fast forwarding in trying to understand how viruses replicate. And this was a more of a biological model. They wanted to see it, even with human interactions, you know, because humans were putting in all the input by playing this game. But behind the scene, people were finding ways that a typical virus would have found it a way to, you know, replicate or change in which direction it's going to go. There were also these situations that were created, automated, and sort of rudimentary AI machine learning tools to help with identifying all the genes and, you know, the gene splicing. The Genome Project was one of the fastest advancements in science that happened literally in front of our eyes of how quickly they went using, you know, a lot of these machine learning tools and AI to use you know, like you have so many zillions of inputs, like how do you figure out how this is all going to play out? It just shortened the time and the light years in between. That is where I think AI is most useful, is shortening the time. When we think about things like the path to personalized medicine and my DNA is mapped and that will allow a computer system to identify which medications I should use, right. what's the risk of a certain illness and how do I make sure I have a diet that's appropriate for someone who has a risk of diabetes versus Parkinson's. I can manage my entire life with an eye toward health, not fear of, but rather proactive, we can make a lot better choices in the whole scope of our lives. You mentioned something about how 70% of transformations are failing. And similarly in AI, the same issue is going to happen, which means the implementation and the information that is being given to you, it will only work if you trust it. This is why transformations fail. It will only work if people adapt to that change. And it comes down to leadership and trust to make that trust available so that people actually believe in it. And the information is relatively correct. It doesn't have to be precise, but it's a question of how reliable is that information? And within the variation, you know, like, is it giving you proper information or is it basically just telling you, you know, it might be correct, it might not be correct, or you don't trust it because somebody told you not to trust it. That's, I think, a really good point. The idea that AIs, quote, hallucinate, they make stuff up, right? just like humans do. They fill in the gaps. So the idea of general intelligence versus a specific thing when we did some writing for one of our upcoming books, we specifically asked it to go look at our prior work, and I know if it's making things up, and then cite the resources that we then go back and check. So that's a very narrow task versus go tell us about AI and leadership, where it is at risk of misinformation going and looking at either people who are using outdated information or chaos creators. So how we use the tool seems really important right now. And to tie back to trust then, as a leader, one of the things I've heard people be afraid of is if folks go to an AI assuming it's an oracle versus it's an intern that I'm teaching, then I as the leader, if I'm using it as an oracle, become not trustworthy when it starts to make mistakes. So I think as leaders, how we use the tools, just like 
I use my lawnmower. I, I don't go run over the neighbor's children with my lawnmower. It, don't do harm. Exactly. Don't do harm. And what I call is adult supervision. You know, you just need adult supervision. And that's true with companies with or without, you know, AI. One of the examples that I give, Google became Google not because of just Sergey Brin and, you know, Larry Page. It was because of Eric Schmidt. There was adult supervision in trying to get the organization grow in the way it grew because somebody else was brought in who had experiences in making companies mature. Same thing with AI. You need some amount of adult supervision. There are types of leadership. They can go from zero to 10, and that's their sweet spot. Don't ask them to go from 100 to 1,000. They don't know what to do with that because they have had no training in that. So as the company is scaling up, they put things in place or they put behaviors in place or expectations in place that, again, brings them down to zero to 10 because that's their comfortable spot. And this has happened over and over again. That is some of the work that I try to help boards understand that your leadership needs to be managed. Some people are just really, really good at skunk works and you know, innovation and those types of things. Don't ask them to scale by giving them a billion dollars. <laughs> All they will scale is, oh, I'll just go hire, you know, 1,200 people. They have no processes to even pay a vendor on time because they didn't need those processes. They were considered as hampering. I've heard leadership actually come back and tell me, please don't use the word process in any meeting with this C-suite because that's a very bad word. Because this person interprets having an operational process in place very bureaucratic. It stops their innovation. So don't use that word. Don't use that word. <laughs> and I'm saying, yeah, you just got billion dollars. What are you going to do with that? How do you advise boards specifically in working with leadership teams? So if you were working with that board, would you advise them to, using your words, bring in adult supervision, bring in the Eric Schmidt? It's a very hard conversation. Many of the board, I think they see it, but some people, unless something very dramatic happens, they do not want to react. They like their board position because they've become friends with each other. So it's a very groupthink behavior comes through, right? During the pandemic, let's say. There were industries where they had to scale down to like zero. The restaurant industry or the airline industry, they had to scale down to zero very, very quickly. It is not that in the airlines industry, they have never scaled down before. They have done it, you know, during 9-11 and, you know, shutting everything down. I mean, they have done it. The boards there, the ones that did scale down properly, could also scale back up really well. And a lot of the airlines did. And some of the airlines still cannot figure out how to scale up. They blame it on not having available people, which is somewhat true. But they also got rid of their underlying processes. That's where I think the board needs to understand that the leadership matters and they need to investigate how resilient and how reliable their processes are and how is the leadership bringing that information to them. Just to add one more point, most corporate boards, they have these committees. Most of them are compensation committees. Then they'll have a succession planning, you know, sort of a committee to kind of look at it. They'll have the audit risk committee from a regulatory standpoint, but what they don't have is operational risk committee. Mm. I think it is very important for boards, especially of a fairly good size, you know, company, 
to start thinking about the operational risk and whether your leadership matches to that. It sounds like to create a resilient organization, I need processes, but also a mechanism to adapt my processes, to scale up, to scale down, to deal with supply chain. Right. And having the capacity to shift my processes is now crucial to being anti-fragile. Correct. And what we have learned during the pandemic is some of the things that we already learned long time ago, variation is a bad thing because the more vary, you know, when you have so much spread, customers are experiencing the variation. They're not experiencing the average, right? And everybody puts so much effort into the average. Like if we can move the average, you know, what people have to decide is if you go to a restaurant, most of us want consistently, even if it's mediocre for it, it's consistently mediocre, right? What you don't want is go to a restaurant. One day it will give you the best food of your life. The next day you're throwing up because it doesn't taste good. You don't want that level of variation happening. And I think that learning should be part of the operational DNA. That is where it is breaking because I'm not finding 30-something who are becoming directors because the 50-something just left during the pandemic, have that experience to figure out that I have to reduce the variation, you know, like understand how to give consistent service out there. It's a brilliant example. And back to basic statistical process control, the old TQM, lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, that the more effective process performs in a smaller band. Not brilliant food and toxic food, but consistently whatever target we've set it for. Because at a certain price point, I want quick. And I don't get a four-course gourmet meal when I'm driving cross-country. I want consistent chicken nuggets. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> and, and a good cup of coffee. coffee. Exactly. Yeah, right. Coffee is the priority. <laughs> nuggets are nice. It needs fast. Right. That's where companies that are going from 100 to 1,000 to 1,000 to 10,000, those things matter completely. When you're going from zero to 10, it doesn't matter. What matters is how brilliant you are. Is this going to actually work for you? So it has to be the best experience or the worst experience. But, you know, you can live through because people are much more understanding. Your customers are much more understanding at that point. But once you become like a $100 million company, you have to have an operating system and you have to reduce complexity and you have to increase your operating margin not by just reducing your working force and slashing people out there, but finding the redundancies, making it much more reliable. I'm finding slowly but steadily, we are bringing back. I've had a client and I helped them deploy Lean Six Sigma 20 years ago. Guess what? Right in 2021, they came back to me to redeploy Lean Six Sigma in their entire organization. That is because, again, the operational DNA, over time, the leadership changed. New leadership came in who didn't value, you know, much more of design thinking and they wanted to implement certain things. Us consultants, you know, we gave them different advice and different things. They got that into place and then the pandemic happened and then they realized this less emphasis on processes and this kind of thinking did not bring in the resiliency. So there were like a couple of people still left from the old types. 
and they are in now in leadership positions. So they brought me back to do exactly the same thing that I did for them 20 years ago. I'm finding more and more of that happening post-pandemic. Can design thinking and process excellence coexist? Absolutely. Because you also have to design processes, right? You can apply design thinking. I mean, these are not independent things. They're principles that you borrow from each side, right? We cannot wait for accidental innovation. We have to put processes for innovation to happen. We have to know what a minimum viable product looks like, and then you're going to iterate. And that's all process. You have to have a very reliable standard process of innovation happening to have a repeatable, measurable way of assessing whether these products are going to mature and what their paths are going to look like. So it's not accidental. One of my biggest clients has been, you know, Eli Lilly, which is a big pharma companies. And I mentioned them because, you know, they cannot have accidental drug development. They have to put in really strong processes for drug development to happen. It takes 10 years, 12 years from the idea to actually going to market. If they reduce it to any big pharma or any pharmaceutical company, if they can reduce it even by six months, that's huge from patient standpoint and also for these companies. So they need to have processes. That's, to me, design thinking and innovation goes hand in hand. Same thing in processes. People who have organizational structures that is doing the same thing over and over again they need to bring it some of the design thinking principles in play in order to design new processes, make sure you're reducing complexity. How do you reduce complexity without design thinking? I cannot even think of that, right? You have to have agile design, different lean design principles, intuitive design, however you want to call it, to reduce complexity. As we look forward in the world, you know, we use the tagline future ready. It seems that even if we have a six-month pause For some people on AI, we know the bad actors aren't going to pause. So however that conversation is framed, AI is going to happen. And we want to create a world where that is as beneficial as possible, manage the risks as much as possible. How do you think about leveraging what you're doing with Eli Lilly? How do you help our listeners think about design thinking, Six Sigma, Lean, And how can they leverage this, what is now we're calling the intern, but will over time with quantum computing and things like that be a huge impact on the world? But I want to start today. I want my little company to get the benefit along with or in advance of my competitors. Great question. This goes back to like even 1940s. VUCA came from the military world. So this other tool came from in 1940s from the military world. It's called FMEA, which is failure modes and effects analysis. It's a very subjective tool, but you can bring an actual leadership team into place and it identifies where things are going to break. And when they break, what severity is going to be the effect? And then you try to understand what variables in my world, Y is a function of X. So what are those X variables? that are actually going to bring about those effects. Because we cannot change the effect. We cannot change the Y variable, the output, because that just happened, or what I call compost happened. So that is what happens. What happens in X is what we can control and what we can change. So if we understand what are those 
factors that can create that risk or actually make those things happen, that tool itself in making us understand and therefore having some kind of an understanding of what actions one should take, how are we going to even detect it? The higher the risk is, if we don't even know that this X variable happened today, and I know that if this keeps on happening this frequently, and I have no detection for that, then I cannot even predict, you know, things are going to break. And that's when things break. So there are tools that are available. And a lot of my work, believe it or not, the first day I walk into a client site, I come with that whole FMEA mindset. And I start this conversation. They don't know that they're using a tool. But that's how I'm facilitating the discussion. And now they have a handbook at the end of the day. Back to our statistical process control, root cause analysis, Kaizen analysis. Right. The tools that Deming developed in the 80s and earlier for operational excellence, we're carrying forward into the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s as the foundation upon which we build this cool new AI stuff. That's where that conversation needs to happen. Just like every other technology, most leadership is not going to get it as to what the technology can and cannot do. And I think that is where the experts need to have an open discussion about the can and cannot do. Just a word of caution. It's not the Gen Z necessarily or the millennials necessarily are experts just because they can use their thumbs to work on a phone. The experts are people who actually know what is going in behind these machine learning tools. The experts are those who know, have seen things, algorithms develop over time, who understand neural networks, you know, all of the things behind the scenes. Just because somebody's grandkid knows how to set up Netflix account on their TV does not make them an expert on AI. And I think this habit that leadership and organizations nowadays have, the number of times, I mean, Maureen, I'm sure you've heard that, oh, you know, 50% of our workforce are going to be millennials and Gen Z. Have we prepared for them? We should listen to them more often. And I'm like going, human beings don't evolve that fast. But what we can address is law, <laughs> policies, and processes. And risk. And risk. And things like engagement. We certainly want to engage across the workforce. Absolutely. And it is different. What our young folks require is very different than my folks who are in their 70s who still want to work and they're still competent. So I do think there are places we engage. But to your point, the people who built the algorithms are the people we should be listening to right. as it relates to how to use the algorithms and where the risk is. When all of these CEOs are saying, do a pause, there's a reason for that. If you look at the recent bank failures, are we surprised as to why they failed? The laws didn't catch up fast enough. And actually, they were actually changed for middle-sized banks. Because, oh, you know, it's the large banks that fail, you know, big banks, break them up. You know, there were all these, you know, signs coming up. And the middle banks, the size banks, we just said, you know, we shouldn't give them any more regulations. You know, they should, you know, they'll be able to manage themselves, you know, self-governing, all of those things. And then they're going to fail because guess what? Risk is still subjective. It is not that we know what is the chance of getting a king of spades, one out of 52, but... That is an objective uncertainty in some sense, measurement of uncertainty. 
But rest of us are all Bayesians. You know, we have subjective understanding of uncertainty and risk is right behind that. So some of those have to be managed because we have to detect and create thresholds that manage that. Those risks are passed on to every other bank through the FDIC, and that gets passed on to us. So the risk does, it's not somewhere out there. It's in my local bank is going to charge me more because they have to insure my account. Absolutely. Just like if I live in Florida and there's a hurricane, the cost of insurance in Florida goes up. There's a direct correlation for all of us. We have found that women in leadership typically manage better risk. Having more women in leadership, there is enormous amount of data in organizations that add more women in corporate boards, more women in the C-suite, led to those companies managing their risk much better. There's some kind of an intuitive gender emphasis in where they come from some experiential standpoint. And yet, we were making intentional progress, but I think the pandemic wiped out women in C-suite much faster than I've ever seen in the last five years, three years, much faster than ever before. So that is something, you know, like evidence-based. We have to really make a lot of effort if we learned anything from pandemic. You know, the great resignation that everybody keeps talking about are really women in their 50s and 60s who just said, we're done, you know, we're going to leave. And that's a huge loss. And we have to really build that up, part of the resilience story. Because I think basic perception of risk is different across gender and race and other different intersectional parameters, because it is subjective. How do we combine risk and innovation? Because I want to manage my risk, and yet I also want to innovate quickly. You know, that's a very good question. So I came into this country with 40 bucks. Wow. Literally. Government of India allowed 20 bucks at that time. So I had to get 20 other dollars, which I hid in a box of tampons because I thought security will never look at that. So my sense of risk is very different from others, right? Plus, I happen to have started my first company when I was 15. So being an entrepreneur, my sense of risk is always like failure is a good thing. Failure is a good thing, you know, so I'm going to make it fail. And I think the phrase fail fast is very important because it is important to fail, but you have to fail fast. And you have to collect data really, really fast to make that risk manageable. And you have to design it in a sense of experiment so that you can manage the control group. Innovation to me is it is always about the control group that you're leaving aside, but you're also letting that survive without bringing your innovation straight to the whole shebang very quickly. We talk about leadership, and I think this is becoming even more relevant now as leaders need to have the mind of a scientist. We're solving for too many variables concurrently, and we just can't do it. So we need to continually experiment. I still don't like fail fast. I like learn fast. Because failure still, to me, connotes there are people who do bad science. And they blow stuff up. True. I like learn first. So I like your point about innovation and risk. And we need to be innovating our thinking and experimenting all the time and managing risks smartly, not narrowing down the parameters to keep the learning out. Yes. 
when we formed Parker the Gamification, that was creating video games to train people how to do their jobs. If you think about pilots, you know, they learn mostly on essentially flight simulators because, you know, what are the chances of you crashing a plane? Hopefully it is brought down to zero. So the question is, how do you practice whenever some situation happens so that you know and you have essentially your brain muscles trained in a way that you do all the right things in a moment of crisis? The same thing we were trying to do it with call center agents. Instead of putting them on a real call and messing up a whole customer service experience, why don't we put them in a simulated situation and see how they behave? and where you need targeted intervention to teach them how to change their behavior. That was the purpose of entire poker game and what we did there. And I think that is where innovation can happen, is creating those controlled environments in large organizations. John Carter wrote a book, I think, about 10 years ago called Accelerate Chain, and he mentioned, you know, something about the dual operating systems. So, you know, companies like Cardinal Health or Nationwide or any of these, you know, Fortune 500 companies, if they have a dual operating system, which means you make small improvements in the regular business, things happen, you make that little change, people leave, you hire people, train people, you do your regular operating on this system. And then you have essentially this dual operating system of skunk wars where you're doing all your transformational innovation or you're acquiring small companies, bring them in the loop. And that has to stay completely separated out until they produce something that can then replace the other one. That's the sort of using your term learn fast. It is also learn safe. Is it a fail safe, you know? <laughs> I love that as we wrap up that idea that we are back to managing the risk and creating the petri dish isn't the right term from my you know high school science but <laughs> but what's the holding container that is safe and we can do all kinds of experiments in this in technology would be the sandbox right or the development site and we shouldn't expect fine processes coming out of it all the bureaucracy should be taken out because it doesn't make any sense. And there are leadership who does very well in that environment. In the technology startup world, most leadership does very well in that environment. It's when the technology companies grow. There are very few Paul Allens and Steve Jobs and Susan Wozniak and name all these different people. They have very different leadership that can actually be in different levels of the company as it has grown and matured. I mean, those are unique individuals, but corporate boards should definitely look in who they need in leadership and for it to scale. Really, thank you. This has been a really insightful conversation. I know we've crossed a lot of topics and I want to summarize and then invite you to do the same. One of the things that stands out to me is as we look into the future and the volume of change and this whole VUCA environment, having good data strong processes that we continue to refine, create places to experiment and do the high velocity change while we continue to operate our business smartly and safely so our customers have an experience within a, an appropriate control range allows us to both do the must-dos well and experiment with the things that will continue to delight them in the future. Absolutely. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk. 
every interaction I have with people, I try to get some learning out of it. I love learn safe and learn fast. So that's what I'm going to be using, you know, going forward. I'll adapt to that very quickly. <laughs> Thank you, which is exactly what Pakra did, right? You you taught people to learn safe and learn fast. Yep. Yep. So Rini, where would our listeners reach you? Best way to do is, you know, go to our website, which is rdmcelps.com. Find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Most of my clients have come with word of mouth. They always take me where they go. I also have co-founded an organization for LGBTQ professionals in tech called ZetaBytes.today. So you can find me there. I'm also the co-president of Get With It, Columbus chapter, which is women in technology. You can find me there. I can be found. I'm <laughs> everywhere. So <laughs> Google me. Come talk to me. Let's have coffee. Thank you. And you are one of our strategic partners. So also people can find this interview and more information about you on our website. Thank you for sharing with our listeners your wisdom across the broad range of topics. And thank you for leading innovation all the way, especially among women. <music> <laughs>